taxi. Creía que eso solo pasaba en las películas. Coja lo que quiera. Invita a la casa. Muchas gracias. Lo que quiero es que no pierda de vista aquel taxi. No se preocupe. Está todo bajo control. ¿Le molesta el mambo? No, no. Es que tengo de todo, ¿eh? Música heavy, rock, sur, cumbias. Tengo sevillanas. Eh, salsa. Tecnopop, jotas, lo que quiera. Si quiere, le quito el mambo. El mambo me encanta. Es que el mambo... Es lo que mejor va a este tipo de decoración, ¿eh? You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia. Episode 127, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. This episode is part of a larger series about literary theory. If you haven't already, we recommend listening to the episodes on Tar, Rocky, Black Swan, Spotlight, The Banshees of Inishirin, and Donnie Darko. We also recommend watching the 1988 movie, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, before proceeding. Okay, Race, today's getting to know you question is topical because I know you just got back from vacation. Yep. So my question for you is, what is the best vacation you've ever been on? Well, I, I wasn't sure how to answer this partially because I kind of want to say the vacation I just got off. Yeah. <laughs> And maybe that's, you know, the recency bias or whatever. But I have some good reasons for why maybe this vacation I just took was one of the best I've ever been on. So uh, my wife and I went to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And we went for four days and we didn't take um, any of our children. And we had great weather and it was truly great. And I, you know, part of that is definitely going to be the fact that we didn't have our children. So we've never gone <laughs> on a vacation without our children. We've either never, we either didn't have children, like when we went to Guatemala, which is probably my other favorite vacation that oh, I've been yeah. on. Um, that was a blast. Um, or we've just brought them with us, but we've never had children and not brought them. So that might be what is elevating this um, vacation. It was really, really fun. Um, my sisters, shout out to all my sisters who pitched in and watched our kiddos for a couple of days while we went to um, to Vancouver. But the weather was amazing. We had we scored a really great hotel room, um, wow. and we told them that we were there for our anniversary, and they were like, um, you know, through a series of machinations, they put us in like the best the room with the best view. And so we had this great view of like the harbor and it is, it is un, unbelievably beautiful up there. <laughs> it's like, it's just, everything is so picturesque. Like it's got a, a waterfront, like you wouldn't believe like downtown Vancouver is essentially an Island. There's water to the North. The ocean is to the West and there's water to the South. Like it's just, it's really great. And so we had a nice, really nice time. I had some of the best Japanese food in my entire life um, in downtown Vancouver And so for now, my question or my answer tonight to the question is my 2023 trip to Vancouver. Um, and I plan on going back very, very soon. It was awesome. Even just for that one Japanese restaurant, I would go all the way back to Canada. It was awesome. I love it. That's a great yeah. answer. And now I've got a visit. It sounds so lovely. Oh, yeah. I will. I will go back anytime anybody wants to go to Vancouver. I will piggyback on your vacation. <laughs> it is awesome. I love it. My answer for this, um, <clears throat> what I can't seem to get out of my head is kind of a funny response to this question. So I'm going to try and give two responses. One of them is a little bit funny and one of them is more of a traditional answer to the question. I don't know if there's really anything that has ever compared in my whole life to the feeling of going to my grandma's house for Christmas mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when I was like, a child yep. uh it was such a treat we would go down to grandma jeans in georgia every three years the all of my dad's family would agree to meet every three years and so it was like a planned thing and we would drive it's like an eight hour drive and um everyone <laughs> my dad is one of eight and everybody stayed in the same house <laughs> so people had like sleeping wow. bags on the floor you know like everyone was very much all in 
in each other's space. But when I think about it, I'm just like, those were just the best memories. It was very yeah. carefree. It was like, this is, and you know, back then we didn't live in a digital world. And so it was like, if you're going to see your aunts and uncles, you have to go see them, <laughs> you know, right. or you're calling them on the phone, but that's about it. Like that was how we got to see each other. And that's, you know, seeing cousins and everything. Yep. Um, so that really sticks out very much as a memory. Also going to my grandma's house in uh, Utah was like just as lovely for kind of the same reason. So I think going to grandma's house is <laughs> like one of my answers to this question. Method. In adulthood, I would say my favorite vacation, um, I think it's going to be Malaga, Spain, which is where I okay. went uh, in 2019. And I decided I would go in the fall because I wanted to see the Alhambra Palace in the fall colors. And let me tell you, it was so worth it. Such a, such a wonderful experience. Um, Malaga is a city on the southern coast of Spain. It's on the beach. And the Alhambra Palace is in Granada, which is like an hour outside of the city up in the mountains. And I cannot recommend these places enough it's just so so gorgeous the architecture is beautiful there's a big arab influence in southern spain because of the history of how <clears throat> spain was uh, kind of formed as a state and the architecture is just breathtaking in a way that you don't see in other parts of spain i thought that was really amazing um the weather was incredible the beaches are wonderful it's just the loveliest place i would love to go back uh same same kind of thing actually if i hear that anyone is going to malaga let me know because i will come with you <laughs> <laughs> um i'm looking at pictures of this and this is going on my short list of places i want to go i have i haven't been to spain i know that you love spain and um i want to do a spain portugal trip sometime soon and yeah this is oh. <laughs> clearly one of the most beautiful places ever oh it's wow. so so stunning and there's something about the city is, Malaga in particular, has these like white streets made of marble almost. And it's so pristine and so clean. It's just so wonderful. It's very different from like the city that I'm used to living in, which is uh, Los Angeles. And it's not that clean. <laughs> Los Angeles has many good qualities, but cleanliness is not one of them. So I just, it's so, so beautiful. All right, so we are continuing on today in our series about literary theory. Up until this point in the series, we've talked about many different lenses of literary criticism. We've talked about feminist literary criticism, Marxist criticism, psychoanalytic criticism, formalism, new historicism, and then the last episode we talked about deconstruction. Today, we will look at a type of criticism called aesthetic criticism or aestheticism. And we will do this through a couple of different things. We're going to talk about an essay in particular that was written by Harold Bloom, uh, my favorite literary critic, that details some tenets of aestheticism. And it's not necessary to read the essay in advance for this episode, but if you would like to, I do really recommend the essay. I think it's really great. Uh, and we'll talk about the essay in detail. We'll also look at aestheticism through a movie that I have to say is actually my personal favorite movie, which is why I picked it for this episode. The movie is Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, uh, made by the director Pedro Almodovar in the year 1988. Um, it's a great, great movie. And before we get started on aestheticism and Women on the Verge, now I would say is a great time to pause if you have not watched the movie um, as it will be very useful in discussing aesthetic criticism. So give it a chance and watch it and then unpause when you're ready. So we'll take a look first at what is aesthetic criticism or aestheticism. And Wikipedia says it is a philosophy defining aesthetic value as the primary goal in understanding literature. Now, up until this point in the series, we have talked about all of these different theories of literary criticism that to me 
I don't think they seem to have much in common with each other, apart from the fact that they're all talking about literature and art, uh, feminist criticism and Marxist criticism and psychoanalytic, they're clearly in different lanes. Um, all are kind of examining different elements of the text that they're looking at. Um, but I would say if anything unifies those different literary theories, what I would say is they may seem at a glance to be maybe a little bit clinical. If you have listened to this series and you're like, oh, okay, like these are all the tools for picking apart a, a movie, <laughs> but I just liked the movie. Like right. what, if I what if I don't want to pick it apart? Uh, I think you would be justified in that statement. Um, is clinical the right word there? Do you think that's a, an exaggeration race? No, no, no. I think that's completely fair. Like when we talked about Marxism, we were talking about class struggle and like, yeah. you know, hierarchy and society. But I don't think at any point we really discussed like, but did you enjoy watching it? Was it beautiful to yeah. you? You know what? <laughs> and and that's fine. But yeah, that's that's a great point that aestheticism is kind of doing, asking the question that really I think everybody comes to art for at least on some level, which is how, how much fun is this going to be or how, how enjoyable yeah. is this going to be for me? Yes, very much so. So if you're listening to this and you've thought, I don't really like any of these lenses of critical theory, then you may really like this one because aestheticism I think is a very big swerve away from the other lenses that we've talked about. Aestheticism stresses the inherent artistic value of art, which is sometimes linked with the phrase art for art's sake. So not art that is um, supposed to be, you know, have some kind of special meaning or something, but just art for art's sake. We like art because it is beautiful. I'm going to put a pretty picture in my house because it's something that I like to look at. Aestheticism took off in the late 1800s, uh, especially among several famous artists. So there's the uh, visual artist, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, whose paintings are very beautiful if you have not seen them. There's the poet, William Morris, the literary critic, Walter Pater, and also the writer, Oscar Wilde, who wrote the play, The Importance of Being Earnest, uh, which itself is a really great example of aestheticism. Oh, that's a good point. Right. I, I mean, I think if we didn't talk about women on the verge, we could have very much well talked about uh, the importance of being earnest. Totally. It's just so much fun. Yeah. Love yeah. that. <laughs> love that. Part. Um, these critics and artists argued that art should be produced to be beautiful rather than to teach a lesson, create a parallel or perform perform some other didactic purpose. That's... um. I think that's a pretty big thing to ask, right? Um, even when people read books, sometimes they want to be taught a lesson. They don't always want it to be purely beautiful. But right. aestheticism, at least in the late 1800s, said the purpose of art is to express beauty. So as an example of this, think back to any of the movies that we've watched in this series and pretend that we didn't talk about the lens that we talked about. We would be asking, and these are movies, remember, like Tar, Rocky, Black Swan, Spotlight, The Banshees of Inishirin, and Donnie Darko. These are the questions that we did not ask that aestheticism would ask. And aestheticism would ask, first of all, is the movie beautiful? Uh, maybe a corollary question to that would be, is it artistic? In addition to beauty, I think you can also ask, is this piece moving or compelling in some way? Is it scary? Does it make you feel happy? Does it make you feel sad? Um, Stephen Sondheim, obviously one of my favorite um, artists in this world, would also add to this list, does the art surprise you? Because mm. surprise was one of his favorite characteristics in art. Um, so Race, which of those movies do you think that we've watched in this series, what would you say was the most beautiful? Well, it's interesting because so your these first two kind of points you make is like you can ask yourself, is the movie beautiful and is it artistic? And I think defining beauty is mm -hmm. probably the second hardest thing to defining art uh, after defining art. Yeah. So it's like, oh, that's an, those are both interesting questions. And of course, they're going to there's 
a lot of subjectivity, um, you know, entering the chat here. But I think that without a doubt, my answer is Banshees of Inisherin. Ooh, okay. Um, and I think I think that's on multiple levels. Like I said, beauty is kind of a hard thing to define, but like there's multiple ways you can take that, particularly in a movie, right? In a way that like a novel um, or a poem or whatever might not have, um, well, it doesn't have the visual element that a film has. And so um, I would definitely say the Banshees of Inisherin is just beautiful. If you don't speak the language or if you have it on mute or you only watch five minutes of it, you'll be, you'll still say, well, I think I definitely would. This is a very beautiful thing that I'm watching. <laughs> like the 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 landscapes that are being captured are just pre- some of the most beautiful on earth, I would say. And it's just um, it's very ple- a very pleasing kind of aesthetic that it that is going on throughout the movie. Um, and then on other levels, I also think that um, I was like filled um, by it. Like it was enjoyable to me. Mm. It was fun to be sitting there and enjoying us. I was laughing and I was having like emotional reactions. Like you said, um, I would definitely say that it has some Sondheim surprise going, going oh, yeah. that movie, some <laughs> things I didn't see coming. And so um, for my, my answer is, has got to be Banshee's been assured. I love it. I fully agree. I think that's a very beautiful movie, especially just because the landscape is so gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought Donnie Darko stuck out as beautiful in my mind, not for landscape in that one so much, but I just think that the interiors and exteriors are pretty. And I like mm-hmm. the music. To me, mm-hmm. the music in Donnie Darko is such an aesthetic element. I think you could also ask which of the movies were um, not not so aesthetic or that maybe wasn't their main goal. I think... Um, Spotlight, as wonderful of a movie as it is, I don't think Spotlight is trying to be aesthetically pleasing. I agree. You know? it, it, look, it looks good and they've got good actors and everything, but I don't think that you would say beauty is like the primary concern there. Yeah. Um, so one of the prominent aesthetic, well, so one of the problems I say, I would say was with aesthetic criticism is like you said, beauty is hard to define and somewhat subjective. And I think in practice, um, aesthetic criticism is kind of rare, honestly, because it is difficult to write about art being beautiful without just saying this is pretty. I liked (laughs) it so much. (laughs) I liked it so much. Yeah. Um, but that being said, there are a couple aesthetic critics out there. One of them is Harold Bloom, who um, I think we mentioned at the beginning of this series is someone that I, has been very formative for me in the study of English literature. I think his criticism is really worth reading. Um, and so he has an essay in particular that we've uh, studied in, pre- in preparation for this episode, which is in the book called The Western Canon. And it is chapter one of that book. And the chapter is called An Elegy for the Canon. And I really do recommend reading that uh, chapter or the book. Mm -hmm. The book is also very good. Um, But we'll also summarize it for you here. Uh, The nature of the book, The Western Canon, talks about the formation of, quote unquote, the Western Canon, which you can kind of think of as like the books that um, are standing the test of time, the ones that people reread the ones that get taught in schools, kind of the most famous books that are, you know, kind of treated as being um, exalted above other books. And so in this essay, Harold Bloom is talking about the nature of the Western canon, and he ends up giving criticism of other literary theories. And he also gives uh, kind of an explanation of what aesthetic criticism means to him. So he makes some arguments against other criticisms. Um, First off, he says, he quotes a poet and saying, uh, reviewing bad books is bad for the character. And that's worth highlighting because he's already bringing up a notion of a bad book. There are good books and there are bad books. And we haven't said that at any point during this series until now, right? There are good movies, there are bad movies. What does that mean? What is a bad book versus a good book? Um, He gets into it. He also says that the Western canon has always been influenced by aesthetic choices rather than any other choices. He says the aesthetic is an individual and not a societal concern. 
He says, quote, if we read the Western canon in order to form our social, political, or personal moral values, I firmly believe we will become monsters of selfishness and exploitation. To read in the service of any ideology is not, in my judgment, to read at all. The reception of aesthetic power enables us to learn how to talk to ourselves and how to endure ourselves. The true use of Shakespeare or of Cervantes, of Homer or of Dante, of Chaucer or of Rabelais, is to augment one's own growing inner self. Reading deeply in the Western canon will not make one a better or worse person, a more useful or more harmful citizen. The mind's dialogue with itself is not primarily a social reality. All that the Western canon can bring is the proper use of one's own solitude. He's attacking pretty fiercely here the other criticisms that we've discussed. Uh, for example, feminist criticism, Marxist criticism, and psychoanalytic criticism, I think in particular, which I think he would say are all in the service of an ideology. You're mm -hmm. doing a feminist reading because you're interested in feminist ideology. You're doing a Marxist reading because you're talking about Marxist ideology, et cetera. And he says that to read this way is not to read because you're looking for an ideology when the point of literature is to what he says, an individual concern and not a societal concern. He says, a poem cannot be read as a poem because it is primarily a social document or rarely yet possibly an attempt to overcome philosophy. The attack on poetry either exiles it for being destructive of social well-being or allows its sufferance if it will assume the work of social catharsis under the banners of the new multi multiculturalism. He would say that the readings that we've done in other episodes are reductive and that they're only looking at certain ideological elements of the text that they're analyzing when they're actually ignoring other things. And I think one argument in particular that he would make is Shakespeare is the center of the Western canon, according to Harold Bloom. But he would say this is not because his work succeeds from some you know, literary theory reading. It's not because there's a feminist reading or a deconstructivist reading that has made Shakespeare great. He would say that there is an inherent aesthetic strength in the plays of Shakespeare that make him quote unquote better than other plays and other authors. Um, I think this is a really compelling argument. I think there's a lot to pick apart. I think he makes a lot of assumptions that you can also <laughs> deconstruct here. But his theory is pretty clear, which is that uh, there is such a thing as aesthetic strength. And there are other playwrights from the 1500s that you can do feminist readings and psychoanalytic readings of. But Shakespeare is the one that people still read today, whereas Christopher Marlowe, the uh, kind of rival of Shakespeare, is much less well known and less, less well studied. So. Mm -hmm. Harold Bloom's argument is that there is aesthetic power there. So he also gives some principles of aesthetic criticism. Harold Bloom says, quote, one breaks into the Western canon only by aesthetic strength, which is consisted primarily of an amalgam of mastery of figurative language, originality, cognitive power, knowledge, and exuberance of diction. Those are five very interesting things. Have we mentioned any of those things in the series <laughs> at this point? I don't think we have, right? Mm -hmm. And even in maybe in formalism, kind of, which was talking more about like artistic elements and how people can use form to make art, but originality, cognitive power, I mean, knowledge, I think that's a really compelling point um, that, you know, just hasn't been addressed in the other lenses. He also says, one ancient test for the canonical remains fiercely valid. Unless it demands rereading, the work does not qualify. Hmm. So Race, a uh, quick question for you here. Do you think any of the movies that we've watched in this series demand rereading? Hmm. I mean, so I'm looking at our list, um, and maybe I'm just a 
Banshees of Inishir and Fanboy, but that's the one that to <laughs> me right now is standing out. Um, and I would also say that the movie we're going to talk about today um, might also fit that. Um, I, I I often have that experience where I come out of a movie and I think, you know, you always do that thing. So what did you think? And I often find myself saying, I don't know yet. Like, I feel like I kind of have to, and I, I do feel that way a little bit about um, Banshee's been a share. And I would watch that again, this second, if somebody turned it on, mm-hmm. um, but also women on the verge of a nervous breakdown, I would like to experience it again um, to, um, to do that again. But I, I do love the, um, the, this idea, the ancient test for, can, uh, for canonicity is, does it demand rereading? Um, because it, it's in that sense, it's sort of like a, um, oh, what's the word? I'm trying to use a science term. Um, oh, like Darwinism, right? Like the things that survive mm-hmm. have survived for a reason. Yeah. And that reason, um, you know, has to be pretty, like for something like Shakespeare to have survived this long, it has to be pretty, a pretty big reason or a pretty strong reason for people with whom we have nothing in common, essentially, right? Like, yeah. no, so nothing social is in, you know, there's so, such little in common between me and somebody in, you know, 1650 that um, I just, I, I do really like that. And yeah, I, I would rewatch, I, I think I want to rewatch Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown and Banshees of Inishir and more than any other movie on the list for this reason, kind of a, it demands a rereading. I like that verb a lot in particular demands rereading. Yeah. Like it's <clears throat> not only asking you to rereading it, uh, it's requiring you to do so. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, I think about my experience watching Tar in the theater, <clears throat> which I thought was so engaging and shocking that for the next three days, I felt like I was rewatching the movie in my head. It yeah. was like it couldn't go away, you know? Yeah, uh, Tar very much was that movie for me. Yeah, we've you and I have discussed. I asked. I think that was a get to know you question out a while ago, which is how do you decide if a movie is good? And um, yeah, and I this is and you know maybe this is simplistic or whatever, but I do think that this is one of the answers, which is how long after the movie is gone from you know your eyes are you still thinking about it? And you know maybe there's some some trick answers where it could be like i actually hated that movie and there i you know the whole world agrees there's no artistic merit but for some reason it's stuck in my head but i do think that like if you're still thinking about a movie or a scene or the dialogue or a character six months or a year after you've watched a movie um like i kind of don't care what you say your brain is is revealing to me that you think that mm-hmm. movie is good yeah. on some level, right you can't get it out because there i have seen so many movies that if you pressed me, I'd be like, I don't remember, I can't. And then there are other things mm-hmm. that's like, I think about that scene all the time. Um, so it's a really fun kind of test for, you know, I guess staying power is the word. Like, um, what has staying power? And, you know, what does that mean about that art? And it obviously means something. And that that's a great point. And that really is, I think, the thesis of this essay, which mm-hmm. is that Western literature or literature throughout the whole world is very old at this point. And there are a lot of books out there. There's a lot of movies. There are a lot, there's lots of art to consume. So what gets passed down from generation to generation? And the answer is it's the stuff that sticks. It's the stuff that for some reason, no one can get out of their heads. And you know, at least in our culture, Hamlet is one of those things. <laughs> yeah. And that's particularly interesting, particularly interesting because um, Harold Bloom makes the point that, and we're, we've been talking about it too, that like, this is also all subjective, right? Like not, yeah. so, so we, we, it's almost like a consensus is reached um, in the essay. This is one of the things that I kind of underlined is um, it says, Harold Bloom says, pragmatically aesthetic value can be recognized or experienced but it cannot be conveyed to those who are incapable of grasping its sensations and perceptions to quarrel on its behalf is always a blunder, which is kind of what, how you started off saying, which is like, I just like it. (laughs) And I don't, I can't, I can't argue with you why I think that, you know, Wes Anderson is beautiful to me, but his movies just are or whatever. And, um, and it's interesting that like, Oh yeah. 
a huge population of the world just kind of also has that in there. this also just tickles their brain in the right way. So it's stuck around for 500 years. Like that's, that's mm. such a, a kind of an interesting and also almost self-evident way of like evaluating art. So this all leads us to our conversation today about the movie that we've both watched in preparation for this episode, um, which is Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, the 1988 Pedro Almodovar film. Um, Pedro Almodovar is a very famous Spanish filmmaker. This is, um, regrettably, the first of his films that I've ever seen. Um, yeah, you're, I, you're in for a real treat. <laughs> he has, I mean... They're just so wonderful. I, I'll stop gushing now. He's so, so good. <laughs> well, I looked through the list of his films and I'd heard of um, a couple of them. I, I would mm. maybe venture to say that um, Volver is the yes. perhaps mm. the most famous. I know I've like as soon as I read that, I could picture the poster and it's like, OK, I've seen oh, Penelope so. Cruz on this poster mm. somewhere. Um, so I will have to dip, dip into his um, his work a little bit more um, but he's very famous he's a spanish filmmaker he's achieved kind of international interest um, this movie came out in 1988 and it was almodovar's breakout hit so it's kind of the one that put him on the map this is also often considered to be one of his finest films um, almodovar has a style all his own which is really fun um, the way wikipedia kind of summarizes it is his films are marked by melodrama irreverent humor bold color glossy decor quotations from popular culture and complex narratives mm. um, this movie was nominated for best foreign film at the 1988 oscars so it was well received at its time um, and it continues to be well received it's kind of a cult classic um, and it's actually been adapted to a broadway show tyler you haven't seen this on broadway by chance oh i didn't even know about that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah in, i think in 2010 the run, the the show first um hit the stage so there's also oh, a broadway wow. adaptation of this which <laughs> sounds interesting um a quick note um so the title in english is obviously women on the verge of a nervous breakdown but the spanish phrase the spanish title um uses a different phrase so the spanish title is mujeres al borde de un ataque de nervios so an attack of the nerves is like literally what that says in Spanish. And Wikipedia points out that an attack of the nerves is quite different from a nervous breakdown. Um, mm. And they categorize an attack of the nerves as something called a cultural bound, um, like psychological phenomenon, which like the idea of a cultural um, culture bound phenomenon is something that is recognized as a um, like a condition or an experience in a certain culture, but it's not really scientifically based or it's rather, it's so influenced by culture that, you know, like, oh yeah, this is a disease or these diseases are part of a, or these experiences are part of like an overall category um, in Japan. But then if you, somebody in the West, you know, saw this, they would say, well, I wouldn't categorize that in this way at all. Or I, we wouldn't have a name for this or whatever. Um, which is a really interesting idea, right? Because it feels like medicine and all of that is so, um, like, that's the whole point is like, what do we observe? What does it mean? How can we, you know, um, it should be, it's, um, it's objective and it should be kind of like irrespective of culture, right? Like if you, if you have cirrhosis of the liver in Japan, you also have it in the United yeah. States, <laughs> but you know, how that is categorized with other diseases or how it's whatever, you know, is, um, can be culturally influenced. So that's really interesting. But that idea, an ataque de nervios, an, an attack of the nerves in Spanish culture, um, it's um, kind of characterized, it's the, the individual, most often female, displays dramatic outpouring of negative emotions, bodily gestures, occasionally falling to the ground and fainting, often in, in response to receiving disturbing news or witnessing or participating in an upsetting event. It's connected with hysteria, um, and so it's largely gendered and it's got a lot of melodrama in it. So it's perfect for Almodovar because those are things that he's really interested in. Um, but super interesting, right? Like that, that this is maybe, maybe this is like a Spanish flavor of, um, uh, of an idea. That's kind of cool. Mm. Um, this movie stars a woman named um, Carmen Mara and a young, super hot Antonio Banderas is in this movie as well. Tyler, you told me that going in. 
And I was like, okay, great. I'm going to keep my eyes out for Antonio Banderas. And then his character comes into the movie and I was like, okay, it's like a hunky young guy, but where's Antonio Banderas? I just kind of <laughs> forgot that Antonio Banderas was once 24, you know? Yeah, it's crazy. I I think this might have been his first major role. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, it took me like an embarrassing amount of time to be like, oh, right. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Um, anyway, so the plot of this movie, it's um, the story follows a woman, Peppa Marcos. Um, she's a voice actor who dubs um, American or foreign language films into Spanish. Um, her boyfriend, Ivan, is also an actor. He does the same thing. Um, as the film begins, we see Peppa in a huge, um, like a huge funk, to put it, um, you know, simply. She's depressed. She's in this major depression at the fact that Ivan has recently left her without explanation. He's kind of called and said, I'm out of here. Leave uh, a suitcase of my things at the front desk and I will come pick them up from our apartment that we used to share. Um, during her depression, Peppa is hounded by her friend, Candela, who has problems, <laughs> problems of her own, <laughs> to put a, uh, an understatement in here. She recently hooks up with, hooked up with a man who wouldn't, you know, it as luck, you know, who among us hasn't accidentally slept with a Shiite terrorist? <laughs> so she brings this man home, finds out that he's actually a terrorist. He then brings some of his friends to her apartment. Turns out she's now accidentally harboring in her home this cell of like Islamist, Islamist, Islamic extremists and she now fears that she will be seen as an accomplice to the police because she knows that these men plan to hijack an upcoming flight to Stockholm. Um, Peppa also crosses paths with a couple who's interested in subletting her apartment from her. Um, when they show up, Peppa opens the door, I'm surprised to find that the man, um, Carlos, and his wife, Marissa, who show up, Carlos, is Ivan's son that he had with another woman. Um, Peppa tries to get it throughout the film. Peppa's trying to get in contact with Ivan while navigating her suicidal friend, Candela, um, Islamic <laughs> terrorism, her just kind of general ennui and depression, and the colorful and glamorous characters of a very beautiful and glossy 1988 Spain. Do we know what city it's in? I, as I was um, thinking back on this, do they ever say, are we in Barcelona? I don't think they say. I think yeah. it's Madrid, but Madrid, I only maybe. think like this, I've looked this up many times and I gotcha. think it's supposed to be Madrid. I can't remember. Gotcha. Well, yeah, so this is, um, this is one of those movies that when I sat down to like type up the plot, it was like, one, this is bananas. Two, <laughs> um, it's so hard. I did the same thing happened with Banshees of Inisherin, where it's like, I feel like I'm basically just going to have to recreate the movie because everything feels worth mentioning. Like everything yeah. in this, it's like, mm -hmm. like in that summary I just listed, I didn't list the telephone repair guy who's a big deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't mention the gazpacho, which is also a big deal. <laughs> like there's so, so many uh... fun details that I'm sure we'll discuss as we go on. But um, it's a very, it's a, it's a painting that you uh, could look at for a long time, right? It's one of those ones where it's like, oh, there's so many details. And this is, you know, you just, you're, you dwell on it because there's a lot going on and it's all um, kind of very, very cleverly put together. So now we know a little bit about Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown and we know a little bit about aesthetic criticism. Let's see if we can combine the two. Uh, but first and foremost, because I'm really just dying to know at this point, Race, what did you think of this incredible movie? It was, it's an experience to sit down and watch this like two hours or whatever it is, is unlike, I think any film experience that I've ever had. It's very, it's like equal parts telenovela right like there's a lot of i think we've used the word melodrama already mm, so yeah. there's like there are guns being pulled and pointed dramatically at people there are like almost jump scares it's um oh, yeah. there's some mustache twirling almost like it's really really fun in a way that's kind of hard to explain like it's it's um it's simultaneously pretty serious like people are <laughs> we were talking about shiite terrorists and people uh, you know trying to jump out of apartment uh, windows and also really playful and fun 
it's a very unique um, blend of a lot of things going on. So I, I did enjoy watching this movie. I've, um, and you know, not to be too on the nose about it, but I have thought a lot about it. So I watched it three or four nights ago. And um, I remember after I watched it, I was thinking that was very strange. Like that is such a mm-hmm. strange kind of, the plot is strange. And the, some of the characters are really bizarre and people act in kind of strange ways. And I didn't quite know what to make of it, but as it's gone on, I've just, I keep thinking more and more about it. And I, I answered this already, but like, I think I'm going to have to watch this again just to kind of experience and think through it again, but very fun, very different film experience. I love it. I had a very um, special experience with this movie that is unlike anything that I've ever had, which is a really cool moment in time. And I wish that everyone could experience something like it, which is I first saw the movie freshman year of college when I didn't speak Spanish. And then I saw it again five years later when I did speak Spanish. And that was so unusual to experience because the first time I saw it, I was like, what a weird movie. I don't really know what they're saying. (laughs) And then the second time around, I was like, oh, this is so funny. Like everything that they're, you know, all of their accents and the turns of phrase that they spin on it. Uh, It was just very, it was very much like a time capsule. It was like, oh yeah, back then I didn't know this language and now I kind of of know something about it. Uh, So I think that was really, really um, compelling. Um, What do you think of the, let's say aesthetic questions that we asked initially? Would you say, is it beautiful? Is it artistic? Is it surprising? Hmm. So it's definitely beautiful. So I think the Wikipedia summary that I read uses the word glossy. This feels yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it kind of feels like maybe like a fashion, a 1988 fashion magazine, um, like f- accidentally became a group of people walking around Madrid. Like, it's, yeah, it's it's um the outfits are all very eye catching. There's also times when, um, like the decor in a home and the outfit that a person is wearing, like clearly match. It's, oh, yeah. it, it's very well. Um, you can tell a lot of attention has been paid to color, to patterns. It's a really um kind of like rich. Um, visual experience lots of color lots and lots of color like everybody and maybe that's because it's 1988 and people just wore like hey I'm gonna wear a peach you know (laughs) yeah sports coat out in public but um, but it's captured really well and so lots and lots of color Um, so that's just on a on a like a very most basic aesthetic level Um, this is a very interesting thing to look at if you were asking is it beautiful um is it artistic is it surprising there are i would definitely say that this film is surprising it Mm. takes you places like when she sits down and she's like i have a problem with a shiite terrorism cell it's like (laughs) oh okay i was not (laughs) expecting that to be the plot point that came up and Mm -hmm. um i also think there's a really nice turn at the end which i will not spoil for anybody but we kind of get a glimpse into um into the main character's life and kind of the the struggle that she's been going through this whole movie just kind of gets dropped in your lap in the literally the last moment of the movie mm-hmm. and in a way that's really um really cool it um it kind of retroactively a lot of things start to make sense and it's a fun kind of moment of dramatic um kind of a, a nice setup and then payoff of, of the drama there. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that an astute watching this movie, somebody applying the kind of aesthetic formula here, um, this movie is going to, is going to score big. It feels like when Pedro Almodovar made this, he was trying to be fun. He was trying to yeah. make something beautiful and fun. And um, in a way that, you know, this is definitely not, um didn't feel like didactic, like, okay, I've got to talk about class struggle. I've got to talk about whatever. This is just a lady having a bunch of experiences and it's really fun. Um, a very interesting woman having a bunch of interesting experiences in a way that um, is hard to look away from. It's a really, really beautiful film. That's a great point. And I think it is clear <clears throat> um, 
from your examples, especially how deliberate the movie feels. Totally. Um, even like you said, it feels like a fashion magazine. The opening credits are clips of fashion magazines. Yeah, it literally is. See... I, I forgot about that. That's funny. Yeah. And like that, there's that gorgeous song playing uh, Soy and Feliz, a dramatic song. Right. And then it's just kind of scanning over images of flowers and women's lips and like beautiful eyes and cutouts from magazines and sketches of dresses and things like that. Um, it feels like <laughs> from the beginning, he's like, let me show you some art. Yeah. Um, and I think that deliberate quality is also really important. Everything to me in the movie feels specifically designed and decorated in a way that not every movie really does all the time. If you think of other movies, they don't always pay as much attention to the plants that are in the apartment or right. the rugs or the art on the walls. Um, I think Peppa's clothing is really beautiful. She wears, for most of the movie, a red dress with a purple coat on top. And when I watched that with my friend, she was like, I can't believe he's putting red and purple together talking about he being Almodovar. <laughs> right. And I, like, I'm like, yeah, it, you would think it would clash and it looks stunning. It's so like glossy, like you said. Yeah. Um, Candela has these earrings that are little blenders. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you go back, you'll see them. It's really curious. They're like little silver blenders hanging from her ears. And when they get in the taxi and they go on some of those car chases, oh, yeah. the taxi is like, effusive yeah. <laughs> he's got like all like leopard print seats and he's got these like this bleached hair and there's all kinds of magazines in the back that are i think for sale he seems to be like selling some of the stuff in the back yeah um she's like do you have eye drops he's like no i forgot the eye drops it's like well you remembered almost everything else because <laughs> this taxi is like full to bursting um and in any other movie, that might just be a taxi, you know? It's like, totally. for some reason, Almodovar said, this is going to be the Mambo taxi. Right. Um, I also think that beauty actually is a plot point because there is a little plot point about this. There's also a joke made about it, which is that the nemesis, the woman that Yvonne, like, uh, oh, it's Antonio Banderas's mother, um, and she keeps hounding Peppa, like, stop calling, like, don't come here. You know, she's kind of bothering her the whole time. She, they keep talking about how she has these ugly outfits. <laughs> and when Candela meets with the police, Candela's really scared and she starts crying because she thinks they found me like I was with the Shiite terrorist. And so she starts crying and the police are, they're asking her, like, why are you crying? And Peppa said, she's just really worried about that woman's ugly outfit. <laughs> and Candela <laughs> says, it's horrible. <laughs> like through tears. <laughs> um, yeah, I also, one of the other things, like you said, that fashion or um, aesthetics are maybe a plot point here, um, beauty. Um, I had a professor a long time ago point out, anytime people in the movie go to the movies, Oh, Pay close yeah. attention to what's happening. <laughs> like okay. somebody, you know, if, if, if a filmmaker says, by the way, my film is going to include another film. Uh, um, like, think about that because that, that filmmaker certainly did. Right. And, um, and, and in this, um, in the, the, some of the opening scenes, we get to see um, the characters, doing their job, which is voicing over this kind of dramatic Gary Cooper um, scene from an older American mm. film. And um, I don't know, it just, it's, it is, it's setting us up for this idea of um, enjoying art on a certain level. Like um, we are, we, we are watching them kind of, first of all they're artists these two you know they're they're creative um they're in a creative kind of profession and they um they we get it there's this great scene where they they are um dubbing a love scene but we see them do it because obviously they're not standing there looking at each other in the booth mm -hmm. one person goes one day and so there's this great scene of kind of talking past each other 
because the man is saying all these romantic things and the woman is responding, but they're, um, and, and these are the two people that this is um, Peppa and Ivan who are in this relationship. And you get to see um, via like this, a beautiful Gary Cooper film, um, kind of a, a metaphor for their relationship. And so I think it's setting us up to, to say, look, look at this film. Like, like you were saying, kind of like watch um, these beautiful things happen and um, this is some uh, filmmaker who's obviously thinking about film carefully and is putting in these, I don't know, these, these um, special moments. It just made me feel like you said, everything is very deliberate, very um, um, curated every moment of this, yeah. um, including, you know, these scenes from the movie we get to see early on. Very much so. There's um Another quality to this movie that I really love, which is that it contains a lot of things that are only possible artistically. Mm. I'm thinking in particular of the opening scene when you see Ivan walking through his like history of past loves. Yeah. He's saying these like declarations of love to each of the women. That doesn't really make any sense like right. in real life. It's something that only can be perceived as art, you know? It's like, okay, that's, I don't know if you want to call it a metaphor or whatever, but it's like, okay, he is somebody who gets around. Like this guy yeah. has a lot of game. Um, and instead of showing us his actual history with the women, they've done it in kind of an artistic way of, let me just walk you through all of them in one scene. Yeah, a non-literal kind of interpret or uh, demonstration of something totally. And how many times in this movie do we see things falling from the sky, apparently, like, <laughs> just into people's laps or, like, on their head? I mean, it happens, I think, at least four or five times, I noticed, this time around. Yeah. Uh, it just feels kind of surrealist. Um, I think we have to mention as well, Carmen Mauda herself, who plays Peppa, I think, in my opinion, is the most beautiful that anyone has ever looked on screen. <laughs> I think Carmen Mauda in this role, I think she's so stunning. And it's not just her. The woman who plays Candela is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I also think the choice of Rossi De Palma as the fiance Marissa is an especially aesthetic choice. Yeah. Because that woman has a remarkable face. It is so striking. Like I, she used to be a model, I think, before this um, movie was made, or maybe she became a model because of the movie. I can't remember which was which. Um, but you don't just cast Rossi De Palma in like any old movie. Like if, right. if Rossi De Palma is in there, we're going to be looking at her. She has a very compelling look and is always like kind of drawing your attention to her. Yeah, I, if you, um, like me, would not have known what Tyler was talking about if you haven't seen this movie, Google her. And yeah, it, this is clearly, um, like you said, you wouldn't just pick her um, without, yeah, this is an aesthetic choice, like you said, and he's, he's, he's drawing our eye in a specific way, Almodovar is, I feel like. One thing I love about her casting in particular is... Um she's very beautiful and she's like a really nice lady in real life, but her character is really kind of mean and cold. <laughs> like, she doesn't really give you like a warm persona at all. Whereas you kind of feel for Peppa the whole time and you want everything to work out. Uh, Rosa De Palma kind of seems like an antagonist sometimes. Mm, yeah. Um, the movie you mentioned earlier, it's sometimes scary almost like for no reason. I thought one of the scary scenes was when Peppa is in the park watching like people in their apartments and all of a sudden she yeah. sees Rossi De Palma's eyes in the car mirror. Yeah. And there's no reason for us to like think of her as a villain, but it's like, oh no, that's so scary. I don't know why I'm scared, but I'm kind of scared. Totally. Um, and there's like unusual choices uh, that are all, they just, again, feel kind of deliberate when uh, Peppa accidentally lights her bed on fire because she tosses a cigarette on it. Um, there's this like gorgeous romantic score. I think it's Rimsky-Korsakov, like a, a Russian composer from the 1800s. They picked his score to play while the bed burns. Yeah. Um, again, just feels very aesthetic. Um, 
And the characters make some really unusual choices. Peppa is making wild choices all over the place. She admits openly that she put uh, barbiturates in the gazpacho so that she could drug <laughs> Yvonne. The cab driver, the mambo cab driver, he just starts crying because he sees her crying. Uh, Peppa slaps <laughs> the lawyer at one point. It's like, I don't know why you're doing that, but okay. Uh, and she just kind of lies brazenly to the cops, which again... All will be explained at the end as to why Peppa is having this attack de nervios, but um, she is having a hard time. <laughs> um, does this movie, do you think, lend itself to any other lenses outside of aesthetic criticism? Hmm. Well, there's definitely a feminist angle that you could, that would be kind of a good, a good playground to take this movie to because... Um, it's well i mean literally in the title this is a movie about women there's how many women yeah. with, with like strong roles like you know a good portion of the of the dialogue is going to peppa or candela or um even marisa has a lot of um a lot of time and um yeah really cool it, it, one of the other kind of clever things about this is this this man this love interest who we're told from the very beginning is basically the reason why um why peppa is having this nervous breakdown you know from the, the literal title of the movie um but we really never see him i mean we we do like yeah. you said there's like mm -hmm. kind of some scenes um at the beginning sort of these weird montagey things we see like a close up of his mouth but he's not in the movie yeah mm -hmm. he's he's like this this um kind of other presence that is wreaking havoc in some ways and his his um absence is kind of a problem so i think it would be really fun to go through and think about this um from a feminist criticism so that's definitely one that stands out that's a great point um i think that one's definitely there for the taking um because first of all like you pointed out i mean none of the male characters are really fleshed out at all. No. Um, it's the women characters that get the most attention. Yeah. Um, and I think Peppa herself actually says at one point, she might be talking to Candela and she says, you can never figure out a man completely. <laughs> and I like that because I think that's actually the opposite of maybe an old patriarchal truism, totally. which is you can never figure out a woman. Right. <laughs> and, Peppa has uh, inverted that, which is fun. Yeah, yeah. It's always women are this mis men are so straightforward, and women are a mystery. And she's putting that on its head, which would also be kind of a fun deconstructionist playground to go to, which is, um, you know, like you said, the um, taking this kind of binary of of um, men being straightforward, women being simple, um, and then this is also kind of the 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 idea of this being. So women on the verge of a nervous breakdown, which, which women are, you know, who are we talking about here? And yes. I think uh -huh. is maybe every woman in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's a woman who isn't on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of kind of fun play in there too. I always want to try and count them every time because they're even some of the minor characters, like yeah. the woman who's kind of pacing back and forth in front of the elevator she's having a hard time when her boyfriend takes off on the motorcycle without her right and she's like i'm gonna lose it and then there's the jehovah's witness woman who's like i want to lie and help you but we're not allowed to lie in my religion yeah <laughs> can't do that <laughs> uh it's so funny and i think i i we've kind of danced around her i don't even remember this woman's name but the incredible woman who plays uh the antagonist with the gun at the end with the motorcycle. Yes. She's definitely having a nervous breakdown. Definitely. To the point where she says that she escaped from the mental hospital when um, when they found out that she was cured. And Peppa is like, oh, like, uh, well, why are you doing this if you're cured? And the woman takes the pistol and waves it at her. And she says, but I'm not cured. Yeah. <laughs> it's so scary. <laughs> I just really really loved that um maybe there's a little bit of a formalist reading that you could do about this movie that might be kind of interesting mm -hmm. i think especially because you mentioned that it had been adapted as a musical that immediately makes me think like oh what are the differences between 
this story being told as a movie versus maybe as a novel or a musical or some other um, kind of adaptation. Right. Um, the movie just feels very cinematic to me. It's like you need these particular performances from these particular actors. You need the ability to have the music playing in a way that kind of creates this counterpoint. We need to have Yvonne walking through his past loves. These are things that really you can only do in a movie. Mm, yeah. No footnotes today. If you like the show, check us out on Instagram at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.